Hey, I'm excited to introduce our, not guest preacher, but our new preacher, <laughs> our new assistant pastor, Andrew Halbert. So a year ago, just uh, so you are aware, uh, I was talking to our elders and, and our staff, and I said, I think it's time in our church history to hire a full-time global missions pastor. Andy Halbert has been so faithful for 29 years, roughly, of, of being our part-time missions pastor. And, and really, he's helped with our missions committee. He's helped make it and turn into where it is today in 29 years. And now we are at a point in our church's history to be able to to support a full-time global and local missions pastor. And I'm so thrilled because he's here. And we've been talking about this for a year. I, I brought this up to, to him and Julie over a year ago. And, and uh, good things happen for those who wait, right? <laughs> and, and I've been a little patient, to be honest with you. It's been, a, it's been hard, but it's been great because he's finally here. And, and they had to finish out their, their school year uh, their semester at uh, the seminary in Costa Rica. Andrew's coming uh, from San Jose, Costa Rica, where he was over 10 years. And he served as the director of their seminary, Asepa Seminary. The man is not only gifted uh, in, in Bible doctrine, uh, but he also speaks Spanish fluently. So I'm thrilled about that. And he has vast experience working with missionaries and global missions. And we are blessed to have him here and to, to have him on our staff. He's gonna be starting May 1st. They need a couple months in transition as they're coming cross-culturally and, and, or cross-cultural and they're having to attend different seminars just to get acclimated into, back into the States because they're used to being in Costa Rica the last 10 years. But Andrew comes with, with Renee and, and they also have, or with Julie rather, Andrew and Julie and they have Anne, Renee and Brian, their two kids. And so they've come and they'll start officially May 1st. But Christ Covenant, let's give this brother a warm welcome to our staff and to our church, Andrew Halbert. Good morning. It is uh, my privilege and pleasure to be with you this morning uh, to close out your missions conference. We're going to be looking at Psalm 96 this morning, which is the, uh, Psalm 9610 is where you get the theme for your missions conference, The Lord Reigns. Uh, let me pray for us and then we will read the text. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning and we ask that you would give us ears to hear, minds to understand and hearts to receive what you have for us in your word this morning through the power of your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Hear the word of the Lord in Psalm 96. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name, tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples, for great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods, for all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him, strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples, Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. 
Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. This is the word of the Lord. After World War II, Henry Garrick, a Lutheran minister, was assigned as a chaplain to a group of Nazi war criminals. Now, these men were not your average, ordinary war criminals, uh, but included some of Hitler's top advisors. And Garrick faithfully preached the gospel to these men through chapel services as they awaited trial and possibly execution. After a short time, eight of these men professed faith in Christ and were admitted to the Lord's table, one of whom was Joachim von Ribbentrop, who had been Germany's foreign minister and who had helped Hitler to deceive the nations and start World War II. Ribbentrop was sentenced to death, and on October 16, 1946, he was the first of the eight summoned to the scaffold. As they placed the noose around his neck, he was asked if he had any last words, and this was his reply. I place all my confidence in the Lamb who made atonement for my sins. May God have mercy on my soul. Now, I share this story with you because it is shocking and unexpected that a high-ranking Nazi official would depart this life with these words of faith in Christ instead of expressing his allegiance and loyalty to Hitler. It is the same sense of shock and surprise that Israel might have felt when they heard the words of Psalm 96 because the Gentiles are being summoned in this psalm into the presence of God to participate in worship. Scholars and theologians have divided this psalm into two, three, and four sections based on different criteria for our purposes, for our purposes this morning. I've divided it into four, and so we will see that verses one through six are a proclamation of God's salvation. Verses uh, seven through nine are an invitation to worship God. Verse 10 stands alone as a declaration of God's reign. And verses 11 to 13 are a celebration of God's justice. As we consider this psalm, I think it is worth pointing out that it is full of imperative verbs. Imperative verbs are commands. And these are often easily missed in our English translations, but there are actually six in the first three verses alone. If you look closely, you might be able to identify them. The first three are the command to sing, which appears twice in verse one and then again in verse two. And the next three are to bless, to tell, and to declare. Now, as I mentioned earlier, this psalm is directed to the Gentiles, and this is evident in the fact that verse 1 commands all the earth to sing. Verse 7 commands, uh, says that the families of the earth are to ascribe to the Lord glory, and verse 9 says that all the earth is to tremble before the Lord. Additionally, if we take a step back and look at Psalm 95, we find that it is uh, similarly a call to worship, but because it is in the first person plural, we know that Psalm 95 is is inviting Israel in to worship God, whereas uh, 96 is inviting the nation. So when we look at these two psalms together, we see a picture, a complete picture of what God is looking for in worship. 
that the nations would sing to him and that his glory and marvelous works would be proclaimed by Jew and by Gentile alike. But how can the nations sing and proclaim the salvation of God and his glory? What is required to proclaim the salvation of God and his glory? We must first experience the salvation of God. And then we must bless the Lord, tell of his salvation, and declare his glory. One commentator says that the news of Yahweh's saving work should be spread abroad day after day until all people and nations know about his glory. He continues saying the message is intended to arouse joy and evoke faith in Yahweh as the nations come to understand that he reigns as king over the whole world. So God is commanding the nations, just as he commanded Israel, to make a proclamation, that is to sing to him, to bless his name, to tell of his salvation for them, and to declare his glory. But he does not simply give the command, he also gives a reason for his command, which we find, actually gives six of them, uh, which we find in verses four through six. Now, for those of you who are parents, I don't know if your experience is similar to mine, but occasionally we ask our kids to do things, or we tell our kids to do things, and sometimes the question that comes back is why? And sometimes the answer that comes back from me is because I said so. And interestingly enough, this is not what God does here. God does not say, sing to me, worship me, declare my glory because I said so. Instead, he gives the command, and then he provides these six reasons as to why his command should be obeyed. As is often the case, God's reason for proclaiming his salvation and his glory among the nations is rooted in his character. That is, it's rooted in who he is. Uh, one of the commentators says that the reasons for the worship and recognition are at the same time their content. It must be so. There cannot be reasons for acknowledging Yahweh beyond the facts about who he is. So let's look at these verses again. We see that the reasons that God gives in 4 through 6 are that he is great. Second, he is to be feared or revered. Third, the gods of the nations are worthless. Fourth, he made the heavens. Fifth, splendor and majesty are before him. And sixth, strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. In reality, we have two principal reasons uh, why the nations should proclaim the salvation of God. That is, that he is great and that he is to be feared above all gods. The remaining reasons that we find are directly related to the issue of other gods and how the Lord is a great God and great king above all gods, as Psalm 95 verse 3 says. Now remember, we're talking about the nations here. So the psalmist compares the strength and the splendor of the Lord to worthless idols of the nations. Some translators actually use the word non-entities instead of worthless idols to describe the false gods of the nations. And I have some more to say about that word in Hebrew, but I think that I need to point out that there are at least two places in the Old Testament where there is clear, almost humorous talk about these false gods and their worthlessness. The first is Elijah and the prophets of Baal in 1 Kings chapter 18. And I'm sure that you know the story, but Elijah challenges the prophets of Baal to see whose God is the true God. 
the prophets of Baal commence to dance. They cut themselves. They call upon this false god. And what happens? Absolutely nothing. And Elijah actually makes fun of them. And he actually makes fun of Baal, saying, oh, maybe he's on vacation. Uh, maybe he can't hear you. You should shout, uh, more, uh, you should shout louder. Uh, and so he makes fun of them. And then God demonstrates beyond a shadow of a doubt that he is the only true God by answering Elijah immediately and definitively. And what this shows is that Baal is a non-entity. He doesn't even exist. He has no power. He is, as the psalm says, worthless. Now, the second example comes from the book of Isaiah, chapter 44, where the prophet is pointing out the foolishness of idolatry. And in verse 14, he's talking about a man who cuts down a cedar for wood. And as he advances, he says, well, half of it he burns in the fire, and over half of it he eats meat. And then in verse 17, he says, and the rest of it he makes into a god, his idol, and he falls down to it and worships it. So Isaiah is saying this is foolishness. You cook with half of the wood and you worship the other half of the wood. Now going back to the Hebrew in this section, uh, in the Hebrew Bible, one of the words that can be used of God is Elohim. We see that, for example, in Genesis 1 when God created the heavens and the earth. But it is, in fact, a plural noun. And it can also be used for the word gods. It's much like our English word God with a capital G and a small g. It can be used sort of uh, generally. Uh, and that's the case in this text. But every time in this text that there is a reference to the Lord, the word used is not Elohim. It is God's covenant name, Yahweh. So, uh, and then the word used for idol, and this is important, is Elilim. So we have Elohim, Elilim. And this is an intentional play on words by the Hebrew author because Elilim is, is the word for worthless. Uh, so idols are made by man, whereas the Lord is not made, but is the maker of the heavens. As is usual in the Bible, the psalm does not reckon we should be respectful of other people's religions. It is more important to honor the real God. Remember that when you think about the false God of the Mormon church who's having a temple erected for him next door. Scripture is not concerned about being respectful of other people's religions, but it's more important to honor the real God. In these first six verses, we see that God commands the Gentiles to proclaim his salvation and his glory among the nations. And the reason for this command just like the commands given to Israel are rooted in the very nature of who God is. In the second set of verses, which are seven through nine, we have another series of imperatives that mirror this first series that we saw. We see the command ascribe, again given three times, followed by, in this case, four imperative verbs, which are bring and come in verse eight, and then worship and tremble in verse nine. The phrase, O families of the peoples, indicates clearly that the focus of the psalm has not changed. It is still directed to the nations. And so this section is an invitation to the nations to worship God. Now, it's worth pointing out here that this focus on the nations might seem a little bit out of place in the psalms. After all, our understanding of Scripture is often that the Old Testament is all about Israel, and it's not until the New Testament where God begins to work in the Gentiles. 
That idea, however, is not true. God chose Israel in the Old Testament as a vehicle to, uh, through which his salvation and glory would be proclaimed to the nations for the express purpose of bringing the nations to himself. And this is evident in scripture in the original promise that God gave to Abraham in Genesis 12, verse 3, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. There are other places in the Pentateuch uh, where we see further evidence of God's desire to bring the Gentiles in through the laws that make provision for the inclusion of the widow, the orphan, and the sojourner or the foreigner. Deuteronomy 24, 14 talks about not oppressing a hired worker, even if he's one of the sojourners living among them. Deuteronomy 24, 19 is the law to not reap your field to the very edges in order to leave some for the widow, the orphan, and the sojourner, the foreigner. In Exodus 22, 2, you shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. So it should not be surprising to us at all to find this in the Psalms because it is clear in the Old Testament that God made provision for the protection and the inclusion of the Gentiles among the Jews. But we find more than just protection in this section. We find an invitation to the nations to worship God. And this also might seem surprising because we do find commands in the Pentateuch against allowing certain people to worship in the tabernacle. Deuteronomy 23.3, no Ammonite or Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord. And this is because they hired Balaam, son of Baor, to curse Israel when they were in the desert. In reality, this command is designed to protect the holiness of the tabernacle. And as we can see, the prohibition is actually limited in scope to the Ammonite and to the Moabite and to the 10th generation. But the provision is made to include Gentiles just as it was made for the Israelites. Deuteronomy 23, 7, you shall not abhor an Edomite for he is your brother. You shall not abhor an Egyptian because you were a sojourner in his land. And God goes so far as to say in Numbers 15, 15, you and the sojourner shall be alike before the Lord. We need to remember also that there are a number of Old Testament examples of Gentiles becoming followers of God. The first, which is often overlooked, is Abraham. Remember that God called a Gentile, Abraham was from Ur, Uh, so he calls Abraham, and through him he creates the nation of Israel. They did not exist prior to that. Other examples uh, include, for example, Rahab, Ruth, Naaman, the Ninevites, at least some of them, and possibly even Nebuchadnezzar. In the New Testament, we see evidence, uh, for example, of, of the kings who come from the east at Jesus' birth, who were probably from Babylon and had, and had heard of Daniel's prophecies. The ministry of Christ, uh, in, in his ministry, we have the Samaritan woman and then the, and the, then the parable of the good Samaritan. All of this comes to its greatest expression in the book of Acts. When in Acts chapter two, God gives his spirit first to the Jews, and then in chapter eight to the Samaritans, and then in chapter 10 to the Gentiles. So Psalm 96 is not an accident. 
Psalm 96 is not misplaced in the canon. The focus of God's salvation was never exclusively Israel, but the nations through Israel, and this text points that out clearly, both in its connection to Israel's history and in its anticipation of future events. In these verses, the nations are invited in to worship the Lord. You're probably very familiar with the quote from John Piper's book, Let the Nations Be Glad, in which he says, missions exists because worship doesn't. At least, that's what most people quote. But in fact, he says more than that. He says that missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exists because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate, not man. I think that Piper's quote does an excellent job of capturing the idea that worship is the ultimate goal of the church, the worship of the Lord by people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, which is achieved through the proclamation of God's salvation and the invitation to participate in worship. Now, I mentioned as we move on to verse 10 that this verse seems, in my opinion, to stand alone, though not all commentators agree. Some include it with the previous verses. Some include it with the following uh, verses. In any case, it is clear that it is a second proclamation or declaration among the nations, as we saw in the opening verses. And one of the similarities that we see is that there is an imperative present, say, followed by a reason or reasons God established the world and will judge with equity. One commentator says that Yahweh's reign undergirds not only Israel's position and the cosmos security, but also world history, and it does so in an upright way. What is clear in, uh, in this verse is that the Lord's reign has already begun. We see this in the fact that the expression, the Lord reigns, is in the present tense. We are to declare the Lord's reign. That, this looks back to God's previous faithfulness and it anticipates or looks forward to his future promises. At the same time, there is also a future sense to the verse in that the judgment of the Lord has not yet occurred. So the Lord reigns, but his kingdom has not yet come as it will in the future. And we share or live in this same tension Today, we know that Christ reigns at the right hand of the Father, and yet we await his glorious second coming when he will make all things new. It is the present reality of the Lord's reign that is the basis for hope, for the hope of his future judgment, and it is the basis for the celebration that is expressed in the final three verses of Psalm 96. These last three verses actually follow the same pattern that we've seen previously, but it's not as easy to recognize. There are uh, several imperative verbs present in these verses, but they don't express a direct command like the ones that we saw before. These are called jussives, and they tend to express the volition or the desire of the person speaking. We see this often uh, in, in the use, when people want to ask permission very politely in Scripture. So you'll say, oh, uh, let the king be pleased, or may the king be pleased. Of course, God is not asking for permission, but he is expressing a desire, and it is one that will certainly come to pass. All of nature will rejoice. 
The earth, the sea, the field, the forest, and all that is in them will rejoice because he will come to judge the earth in righteousness and faithfulness. In Romans chapter eight, the apostle Paul says, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. Now, I don't know if Paul had Psalm 96 in mind when he wrote this, but certainly the celebration of the natural world uh, that, is, that, that this psalm looks forward to and that Paul, uh, sorry, that this psalm looks forward to is because it has been subjected to sin. Why else would the earth look forward to the coming of the Lord if not because the Lord will set all things right? And friends, this is our hope too. We are the Gentiles. This psalm is for us and we are to proclaim the glory of God to the nations and invite the nations in to worship God and declare among the nations the Lord reigns and we look forward to the great celebration that will be the second coming of the Lord. We do this because, as Piper said, worship is ultimate. And mission, missions serves as the vehicle or as the proclamation, the invitation, and the declaration to the nations to join with us in worship of God. At the end of the book of Acts, again, the Apostle Paul in, uh, in chapter 28 is in Rome. He's awaiting his trial and he's meeting with some of the local Jewish leaders, and in verse 28 we read, therefore, these are Paul's words to them, therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. This morning I was looking at the pulpit commentary on this passage, and I came across something that I thought was interesting and appropriate. Amongst the brighter signs of the times in which we live, must be reckoned the universal anxiety now in so many ways manifested on the part of Christian people for the spread of the message of Christ's salvation both at home and abroad. The whole psalm overflows with thankfulness and delight and in it is found this summons to missionary work. So let me close with this. In this psalm, God commands us to proclaim his salvation among the nations, to invite the nations to join in the worship of God where we declare the Lord reigns, which will ultimately result in the celebration of God's righteousness and faithfulness. May it be so. Let me pray for us.